Hello there, I'm Monica Reinagel, and you're listening to the Nutrition Diva Podcast, a show where we take a closer look at nutrition trends and headlines, explain what the latest research means for you, and answer your nutrition questions. Welcome. My guest on the podcast today is Jill Weisenberger. She's a good friend. She's also a registered dietitian nutritionist, a certified diabetes care and education specialist, which will be important for reasons you're about to hear, and also the author of Pre-Diabetes, A Complete Guide. And let me just say, it is a complete guide, and it's also just now out in a newly updated second edition. Welcome to the podcast, Jill, and congratulations on the new edition. Thank you. I'm so excited and I'm glad to be here and be able to chat with you today. Well, the timing for this conversation could not be better because just a couple of days after I received your note announcing the release of the new edition, I got the results of some blood work that had been done as part of a routine physical and I clicked it open expecting to see nothing but good news and my fasting blood glucose reading, my blood sugar reading was 101. And it had a little H next to it to indicate that this reading is considered high. And in fact, a fasting blood glucose between 100 and 124 meets the diagnostic criteria for prediabetes. So this topic just got super personal for me. I bet. (laughs) So my fasting blood glucose was just barely over the line that would tip you into that category. And it seems a little crazy that 99 is fine, but 101 is pre-diabetic. So obviously they've got to put the line somewhere, Right. right. but this isn't just a, a light switch that gets turned on and off. It's really more of a continuum, isn't it? Exactly. It is a continuum. But one thing I want you to understand is this was a one second snapshot of what your blood sugar was. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't diagnose you with prediabetes if if it's at 101 or if it's at at 111. If that's the only snapshot we've looked at, we always take two measurements. So that's the first thing I would suggest that you you do before you start worrying that you have prediabetes is that you get a second measurement. Now, would that only be a measurement of blood glucose or would there be other things we might measure? You could measure the fasting blood glucose again. Mm-hmm. You could measure the hemoglobin A1C, which is a measure of a, it's an estimate of blood sugar levels of about 12 weeks. And you could also do an oral glucose tolerance test, which isn't done that often for prediabetes diagnosis, but sometimes it is. And basically what that is, somebody drinks a certain amount of sugar water, And then they have their blood sugar taken periodically for the next couple of hours. And if somebody is running high at two hours after that swallow of all that sugar, then that would be a number to look at that's diagnostic for prediabetes or diabetes. Well, that's a great point that really no one single number, and you know, this applies to a lot of these numbers Mm -hmm. that we use as risk factors or red flags, including fasting glucose, but also things like total cholesterol or even body mass index, BMI, where there's a number at which you are tipped over into a risk category. But any one of those numbers can really only tell us so much. As you've said, we we, they'll get our attention, but then we need to look at the larger context and see what else is going on. 
Right. Well, as it happened, as part of that routine blood work, not only did they test my fasting blood sugar, but they also tested that measure that you talked about Mm -hmm. that measures the blood sugar management over time. And that was normal. So my doctor said, okay, I'm not worried about this. But you know what, Jill? This definitely got my attention anyway. And even if I do not have a diagnosis of prediabetes at this point, I'm totally motivated to take action based on this. But before we talk about what someone might do to respond to a result like this or an actual diagnosis, I want to just talk quickly about what factors increase your risk of prediabetes. Who needs to be looking out for this? You know what? Pretty much all of us do in that because it's that common. And as we get older, our risks for prediabetes and diabetes increase. In fact, the American Diabetes Association now recommends that we start screening people at age 35. But anybody who has type 2 diabetes in their families, that person would be at higher risk. Men are at higher risk. And there are certain ethnic groups that are more likely to be diagnosed with prediabetes, right? Yes. Native Americans, Latino, Hispanic, Asian Americans as well. Well, you know, one of the reasons that this result in my case took me Mm -hmm. by surprise is that I don't have a lot of those risk factors. Obviously, I'm not male. uh, I am not Hispanic or um, Pacific Islander. I don't have any other cases of type 2 diabetes in my family. I'm pretty active. My diet is pretty good. It's probably not quite as good as my listeners think or imagine, but it's pretty good. In fact, the only risk factor that you've listed that applies to me so far is my age. Mm-hmm. Well, it does it just does go up with age. Just like we our our vision gets worse with age. Right. Just like we lose muscle mass with age. We have to do the best we can do with the hand of cards we've been dealt. Well, but you know, type 2 diabetes is usually or often characterized as a lifestyle disease, Mm -hmm. which implies that it's something that happens to us because of the way we're living. And as we'll talk about in just a minute, things like diet and lifestyle definitely play a role here. But I just want to point out that type 2 diabetes is not always or only a lifestyle issue. Absolutely not. You can be living a reasonably healthy lifestyle. You can even have very few risk factors and still find yourself in this situation. Right. I would say from my own experience, about 15% of the people who I've worked with, this is just rough, 15% that who I've worked with with type 2 diabetes or with prediabetes do not fit the risk factor profile. Yeah, that's a substantial minority. Oh yeah. Yes, it really is. All right. Well, let's talk about what can be done if, like me, you find yourself with this red flag waving. Um, So a lot of the advice, I think, is focused on trying to control the glycemic load of the diet. And by that, I mean avoiding foods that might trigger a rapid Mm -hmm. increase in blood sugar. So that's going to mean avoiding or limiting the amount of sugar-sweetened beverages or desserts, refined carbohydrates, Mm -hmm. baked goods. I think my listeners are fairly familiar with that that list of foods and that advice. But, you know, I've been thinking about this this week. It's absolutely normal for blood sugar to go up after meals. That's not the problem. The problem with type 2 diabetes or prediabetes is that it's not coming back down. Right. Okay. So there's two issues really. 
there is one is the insulin resistance. So there is some degree that the that cells of the body are refusing to use insulin properly. Mm-hmm. So you can be mildly insulin resistant, hugely insulin resistant, and anywhere in between. And then the other problem is that there isn't enough insulin to push the blood sugars down. So insulin is made in the pancreas. And at first, the insulin just comes out in high amounts because of that resistance. So it pushes that blood sugar down. But after a while, the pancreas cannot continue to make that much insulin. So that's what's happening when we see somebody getting higher than ideal blood sugar levels after eating is that the insulin wasn't enough to tap it down. Mm -hmm. Well, this issue of insulin resistance where the insulin is there, but the cells just don't seem to be listening. Mm -hmm. They're not responding to that signal because insulin's normal job is to clear sugar out of the blood and into the cells, the muscles, wherever, so that it can be used in metabolism. Mm-hmm. So so that insulin sen- sensitivity, I was trying to think of an analogy for this. My listeners know I always love to come up with analogies and here's what I came up with. Tell me if this works. If the soil in my garden is too heavy, it has a lot of clay in it, when I water it, it just kind of forms puddles. You know, the water doesn't go into the mm-hmm. soil and that's not good for my plants. So one solution would be to water it less. And the analogy for that would be to avoid foods that cause a high rise in blood sugar. Mm -hmm. But another solution would be to work some organic matter into that soil, which would allow the water to sink in and nourish those plants. And the analogy there would be to increase insulin sensitivity so that the sugar is cleared into the muscle. Does that work? Yes, yes, yes. It's perfect. So that what we have some control over is improving our insulin sensitivity. And I don't mean to say that anybody with insulin resistance can reverse that. That's not what I mean at all. But we do have some strategies, some lifestyle strategies to improve our insulin sensitivity. Yeah, let's get into those. Give, start with your the most impactful thing that we can do to increase insulin sensitivity and enhance our body's ability to clear that blood sugar that Uh, that occurs after meals into the cells. Okay. Number one, it might sound strange coming from another registered dietitian, but it is actually not diet related, but physical activity related. I cannot emphasize how important exercise is. And here's the thing. A lot of people are very active, but they're not doing a lot of different types of activities. And when it comes to overall health and insulin sensitivity and glucose or blood sugar um, removal specifically, we need to have different types of activity. And I'm going to put it into three categories. The first one is something I think everybody's very familiar with, aerobic exercise or cardiovasculars. That'd be brisk walking, jogging, biking, swimming, something like that, where you're breathing heavily. And I think when we tell people they need to get more exercise, that's what they're usually thinking. That's the type of exercise that comes to mind, right? Right. And I'm thinking all types of physical activity, and this is one important type. Okay. So one is that cardiovascular exercise. Another? Strength training. Ah, so like weightlifting. Yes. And I know a lot of people don't want to do it. 
but it has a very different mechanism of action than aerobic activity. So you do aerobic activity and you're going to boost your insulin sensitivity. You do strength training, you're going to improve your insulin sensitivity. And if you do both, it is improving it doubly. Wow. Because they're working through different pathways. Yes. To the same results. So rather than double up on your aerobic exercise, you'd be better off adding more strength training to the aerobic exercise that you're already doing. You got it. And then what's the third type? The third one is reducing sedentary activity. What the American Diabetes Association says about reducing sedentary behavior is that we should break up long periods of sitting with three minutes of light activity every half hour. Every half hour. So I know that a lot of people have watches and things that remind them to get up once an hour, but that's not enough. We need to be doing it every 30 minutes. Ideally, it is every 30 minutes. And the reason for that is every time we move our muscles, the muscles can take up glucose and it doesn't matter how insulin resistant we are. Just movement of muscles will increase the passage of sugar from the blood into the muscles. And this is another reason that I am so adamant about strength training. So after we eat, the place that blood sugar ideally goes is to the muscle. So every time we eat, our blood sugar rises. That is normal. If we have ample muscle and we're not insulin resistant, that is where that blood sugar is going to go. But So think about this. You have some insulin resistance, so it's tougher to get that sugar into your muscle after you eat. So it builds up in your blood. But let's just say you have a lot of muscle versus a little bit of muscle. Well, then you have more place for it to go, right? It's sort of like a bigger sponge to suck up the water. But regardless, it doesn't matter whether we are talking about standing up and doing some stretches from our desk every 30 minutes or lifting heavy weights or light weights or going for a jog, every single time we exercise, we improve our insulin sensitivity. And there's something about moving immediately after a meal that is particularly impactful. Yes. I recommend this very much for people who have done a lot of the really good work implementing various lifestyle changes, but they're still having either a high A1C or a high post-meal after eating blood sugar. I'll just ask them for every meal that you have that opportunity, take a walk after every meal. And it can be just 15 or 20 minutes. Yes. So 20 minutes is ideal, but you know, five or 10 minutes is going to, is still five or 10 minutes, right? Yeah. So every single time you move, you are lowering your blood sugar. Yeah. And this is something that we can all do. Yes. Now there's another thing on your list here that I think we all know is important for all kinds of reasons, but sometimes it is challenging and that is sleep. That sleep quality impacts our insulin sensitivity. Right. Isn't that fascinating, Monica? It's not... So I used to think this was the reason that 
sleep was so important for for nutrition, weight, and blood sugar. It's because when we're sleep deprived, we're just too tired to pay attention and we eat more poorly. That mm. was what I thought, but that actually does happen, but there's something else and it is specifically related to insulin sensitivity. So anybody with any insulin resistance already has a, a single poor night of sleep is going to have their insulin sensitivity reduced even more. But then we have studies where we where researchers have looked at healthy people with no insulin resistance and they deprive them of a, of their sleep. And I think they I think they only allowed them 4 hours sleep for one night and they showed that it was a huge huge drop in their insulin sensitivity. And of course that's temporary. The good news is the, the, this is something that we can re- also recover when yes. we get a better night's sleep. Um, and of course, you know, we, we also have studies showing that people are definitely hungrier and more likely to snack after a poor night's sleep. So that's all kind of woven mm-hmm. together. It is. It is. So prioritizing sleep, doing what you can to enhance the opportunities for sleep and make the conditions for sleep as favorable as possible. Just one more reason to make that a priority. Mm-hmm. I'll just quickly mention that smoking is definitely a, a risk factor or even a direct cause of type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. There's a connection there. I think most people have plenty of reasons <laughs> already uh, to to look at smoking cessation as a really important priority for health for preservation. Sure. But there's one more thing I want to um, talk about, and that is something that we can do to increase insulin sensitivity is to eat more fiber. And the reason that I want to mention this is that a lot of dietary advice for handling type 2 diabetes or prediabetes is about avoiding carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And fiber is only found in carbohydrate foods. That's right. Fiber is a carbohydrate. Right. So what is the link specifically between fiber and higher fiber foods and insulin sensitivity? There are a couple of things that fibers will do. Well, a more direct route that fibers can improve blood sugar, not through insulin resistance, but improving blood sugar is that sometimes it just slows down the absorption of the food. So, and the release of sugar into the blood. So that's, that's one way, but it actually can have an effect on insulin sensitivity. And this is a process that occurs by a, our gut microbes. So those gut microbes are hungry little beasts. And so if we feed them well, if we feed them the right types of fibers in the right amounts, then they will ferment them. Basically, they are eating them. And in the process, these microbes produce compounds that are beneficial to us. One of those compounds is called butyrate. One of those functions is it improves insulin sensitivity. Hmm. Now, there are also a bunch of dietary supplements that are marketed for their capacity to lower blood sugar or improve blood sugar control. I get emails from listeners constantly asking about these, the things like chromium, cinnamon, apple cider vinegar, berberine. Um, There's even some probiotics that are specifically targeted Mm -hmm. for blood sugar. Right. And in each of those cases, there is actually some research to support some effect, some beneficial Mm -hmm. effect on blood sugar. But I just want to put this in perspective, like how significant would the impact of those kinds of supplements be compared to the other lifestyle modifications that we're talking about? I mean, are they worth the money? 
So if somebody is struggling to improve their their blood sugar, they're trying to reverse prediabetes or make sure they don't get type 2 diabetes, there's a lot of things to do. And it can feel very overwhelming. So because of that, it might seem like, oh, I'll just take this natural supplement pill and that will be a good a good thing to do. But to take that instead of doing the work of figuring out how to make those lifestyle changes fit into your routines, I think is misguided. For one thing, it is very expensive. It is not guaranteed to make a benefit. And I think can be very distracting from things that we know are really important, like taking that walk after a meal, like getting up every 30 minutes to 60 minutes or however often that you can by taking the time to prep some food, to make a salad, things like that. Yeah. I also think sometimes they can generate a false sense of security where we feel like, well, I got this covered. I'm, you know, I'm taking the blood sugar pills and so therefore I'm covered. And that is definitely not the case. These are not going to work in the absence of other appropriate lifestyle modifications. Not typically, no. But you know, so there's two things that you mentioned there that are you know, in most people's cabinets, cinnamon and apple cider vinegar. And if it's not in your cabinet, you can certainly go and get it. So I would say if you like apple cider vinegar, put some on your salad with a meal. It probably does have a very small effect. And the same with cinnamon. But I think there's a difference between using these as foods and using them as supplements. Exactly. Yeah. So incorporate them into your meal plans, into your recipes, to the extent that you enjoy them and get the benefit that way. So there's one more sort of elephant in the room that I want to tackle here. We haven't mentioned it yet, but it is a big factor. Weight loss can significantly increase insulin sensitivity, decrease insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. But many in our profession of nutrition and dietetics are now advocating for a weight-neutral approach to diabetes care and diabetes prevention. In other words, let's not worry about changing body weight. Let's just focus on these other things, even though we do know that it can have a very beneficial effect. I'm curious to know, like, what's your take? How do you handle that with your patients? I do believe that body positivity and weight loss can go together. Mm-hmm. So I am all for body positivity. I am so much against, you know, body shaming and self-shaming. I think these are terrible ways to go through life. But at the same time, I also think we cannot deny how strong the research is that carrying excess weight can be very unhealthy. And for somebody who is looking to reverse high blood sugar or to manage high blood sugar, that's an obvious place to to go. It is the obvious place to look at weight loss. That being said... Well, and before we go on, I just want to point out that even relatively modest amounts of weight loss can make a big difference here. We're not talking about getting everybody down to their, you know, wedding dress size. We're talking just even 5% of your current body weight can significantly increase insulin sensitivity. Right. So 5%, you know, that's 10 pounds for somebody who weighs 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. And what we've we've seen in studies is that it makes the the <clears throat> liver, the fat tissue and the muscle tissue all more insulin sensitive and it also reduces fat in the liver. So it makes a difference. Big difference, yeah. Yeah, it does. But even without weight loss, 
the lifestyle changes that we've been talking about can also be really meaningful, really impactful. Yes, they work. We have studies to show that it works. I have people who just have decided they don't want to try to lose weight anymore because it's too, it's emotionally difficult. Mm -hmm. And so they just don't want to try to do that anymore, but they're certainly interested in their health. They've done beautifully. So many people have done so well with just lifestyle changes without weight loss. And then sometimes weight loss is a side effect of the, of the lifestyle changes. Exactly. Yeah. Jill, this has been super helpful, both for my listeners, but also for me, as is your book, Pre-Diabetes, A Complete Guide. As I said, it's out in a brand new second updated edition, but you also have put together a free pre-diabetes checklist yes. for listeners, and we're going to put a link to that in our show notes. And listeners can also find you on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You're at Nutrition Jill yes. on all of the social media platforms. And of course, your website, which we'll also link to, is jillweissenberger.com. And that's burger, B-E-R-G-E-R. But thank you so much for sharing your expertise, for, for talking me through this scary finding, and, mm -hmm. uh, and for your new edition of the book. Oh, I'm so excited to talk about this topic and to talk to you and your audience. And, um, and thank you, because I'm very excited about the second edition as well. Great. We will link to that in the show notes. And thanks very much, Jill. We'll see you again soon. Yes, I hope so. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, you can email me at nutrition at quickanddirtytips.com or leave me a voicemail at 443-961-6206. Also, please come check out my other podcast. It's called The Change Academy, where we talk about what it takes to create positive behavior change, both in our own lives, as well as in our workplaces and communities. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Change Academy. This is Monica Reinagel, and the Nutrition Diva is a quick and dirty tips podcast. My team includes our director of podcasts, Adam Cecil, audio engineer, Nathan Sems, Davina Tomlin runs our marketing and publicity, Holly Hutchings is our digital operations specialist, Morgan Christensen is our podcast operations and advertising specialist, and Cameron Lacey is our intern. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next week.